Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If everybody could please stand for an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for the great gift of living faith, which opens our eyes now to see all of life differently because of who Jesus is and who we are becoming in him, living in the heart of the church for the sake of the world. Lord, we ask you this night that you would pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that you could open our eyes so we might see more fully the mystery of the faith and the implications of our bearing the name Christian, that you would open our ears so that we could hear your word, that you would open our hearts, come and live within us, and live your life through us. We thank you for this time we have. We thank you for the time in which we live and the mission that you've entrusted to us. Together, Lord, we pray that you would continue to guide your holy church. Watch over our Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, and all bishops in communion with him, and priests and deacons and consecrated religious men and women. And in a special way, pour out a fuller measure of your Holy Spirit on the lay faithful that they might engage in the new evangelization and take their place in this new missionary age. We love you, Lord, and we give you praise and glory in the name of Jesus, who is Lord forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You know, I feel terribly. I was asked to lead the prayer, and I was happy to do it, but we didn't pray for our dear brother, Deacon Sabatino. Uh, he's not feeling well. He's got the flu, and boy, I'll tell you, I, I'm still getting over it. And uh, maybe a quick prayer. Lord, in your grace and your mercy, Watch over your dear deacon and bring him to healing. Be his comfort, be his consolation, be his protection. Surround him with your holy angels. We entrust him in a very special way to Our Lady, that she would take care of him in his time of need and present him to her son. Amen. Well, first of all, I am very impressed you all braved this terrible snow. It's horrible. I'm sorry, I mean... I live in Hampton Roads, Tidewater, southeastern Virginia. It's even worse down there. Even the mention of snow sends people into near panic. And it's a problem because I grew up in Boston. I mean, I'm really used to snow. Uh, it's been a lot of years. <laughs> but as I was driving up here today, and it was foggy and rainy, there were accidents all over the place. I think just in anticipation of snow. <laughs> but thank you all for coming out. I was very impressed when I walked in. Our dear sister over here said, well, I, I did the homework. And she showed me these articles that she was reading on uh, social solidarity and on subsidiarity and, and its application. And very, very impressed. I also noticed a lot of shiny new compendiums of the social doctrine of the Catholic Church. And I hope they don't stay shiny and new. I hope they become tattered and highlighted and underlined and tabs and everything else. That's the sign of a book that's really being used, huh? Uh, I have at home, I, I didn't bring it with me, but it's in the hotel room. 
my very, very favorite book outside of the scriptures and the liturgy of the hours and my devotional books is something by Olivier Clement called The Roots of Christian Mysticism. I don't know if you have it, but if you don't, get it. It's one of those books that you're going to want to just keep going back to and back to and keep it next to your little prayer chair or wherever you pray. It's a compilation of patristic sources woven through the sources is Olivier Clement's writings and theological insights. Uh, he's a lay orthodox theologian of the highest caliber. That book I have to hold with two hands because the pages are falling out of it. The problem is I don't want to buy a new copy because I've highlighted it, it's so worn, I know where this particular thing is. Anybody have books like that? By the way, my friends, that should be what our Bibles look like. Of all Christians, of all Christians, Catholics should be in love with the Word of God. That's a subject for another time, perhaps. But the church is very clear on this. And the wonderful renewal of a love for the Scripture and the study of the Scripture is flourishing in the church, and we need to be a part of that. But I'm glad you have the compendium. Yes, Clement is C-L-E-M-E-N-T. He's with, associated with St. Sergius Institute and uh, a, a really wonderful thinker. In the Orthodox tradition, uh, lay men and women are, do most of the good theological work, which is kind of interesting. He's written a number of other books. Uh, there's a little book he wrote called On Human Being, uh, which I highly recommend. In part of my doctoral work, I helped to translate, not for the public consumption, but for my own, a little book he wrote called Body of Glory, Body of Death, which is an orthodox insight on, on the dignity of the human body. He's really very well worth reading. Let's go over a little bit about what we did last week, and I know we tried to do a lot. And I assure you that the content, and there was a lot of it, will find its way onto the website, and perhaps in a handout from Deacon in the future. I apologize for not presenting it, but I'm still dealing with my mother's last illness, and uh, I just haven't been able to get it done. I will get it done with footnotes and a bibliography for all of you. But what I tried to do last week, of course, was to context the topic, which is Catholics and politics. You know, because it's a topic that some people think is an oxymoron, that they don't fit together. And I hope you began to see that I don't share that conviction at all. And the first thing we did, of course, was to look at what moral coherence means in the social teaching of the Catholic Church. The fact that every one of us who are Catholic or who are Christian of any sort is called into the world because God loves the world and continues to send his son into the world through the church of which we are members. We cannot withdraw from the culture, that particularly in times like this when the culture is imploding, we need to all the more go into it and become that leaven and that light and that salt that the gospel parables speak of. And that part of the culture is politics. I also, using C.S. Lewis, remember that quote from the screw tape letters, uh, borrowed his insight uh, that there are two equal errors that people can fall into concerning the devils. One is to be overly intrigued by them and see them everywhere. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. The other is to pretend they don't exist. And that both suit the devil quite well because he loves both materialists and magicians because they get distracted. And what I suggested was a similar kind of an approach to politics. There are two equal and opposite errors that we can make. 
want us to think that politics is actually going to save the culture. It's not. Okay? And those who think it is, well, we just um, came through a very troubling experience, didn't we? In terms of the election, and we see the implications of it. The problem with that kind of an approach to politics is it also leads to zealotry. The other side of that is to withdraw. We can't. Because especially laymen and women are called into, quote, the temporal order. Called to engage the culture with the great ideas informed by faith and to offer what the church offers because she walks the way of the human person. I tried to context some of this in Christian history. I think I tried to bite off a lot last week. Demonstrating that in fact, and you hear this a lot, particularly in pro-life work, and I'm an old pro-life warhorse. I've been at this thing for a long time. This idea that, oh, it's never been this bad. This horrible culture of death. Well, it is a horrible culture of death, but you know what? We've been here before. So I use some early Christian history to demonstrate that this is what the church does. And the early church walked right into the culture of death and transformed it from within into a culture of life. And with a mat within a matter of centuries turned it around. So can it happen? Yes, it can. I didn't recommend a book, which I will now because it just popped into my head, uh, written in the mid-1990s. It's not a theological book, it's a sociological book by someone named Rodney Stark. Um, and what was it called? <laughs> the Rise of Christianity, thank you so much. And He did a very good job of demonstrating uh, from one perspective, how this actually happened. How did this small band of followers of this Jesus actually transform uh, their age? And one of the things Stark pointed to, and it's been a lot of years since I've read the book, but I think he did a very good job of this, is that it was by their living witness. Simple examples, and I'm paraphrasing, but you know, when the culture had become basically given over to hedonism and license masquerading as liberty, and when it had become homosexualized, and when primitive practice of abortion was continuing to grow, but even more than that, exposure, the leaving of infants on rocks when you didn't want them, Christians lived very differently. They were faithful to one another in monogamous marriages. Pagan men wanted to be with Christian women because they knew they wouldn't put their babies out on rocks. And over time, this kind of attractive lifestyle began to intrigue the pagans because the existential questions that are in every human heart, who are we, why are we here, what's the purpose of life, why do we do things we don't want to do, all of this was answered by the witness of the Christian faith. Sound familiar? And I suggested that I prefer, not that we're living in a post-Christian age, which you hear a lot these days, but that we're living in a pre-Christian age but it is neo-pagan. Secularist, yes, but really neo-pagan. Then I suggested that in our political participation, we need to rediscover that Catholic is the noun. Not conservative, not liberal, not neoliberal, neoconservative, not all the permutations of those labels, but Catholic is the noun. And we want to have our minds and our hearts and our lives informed by the teaching of the church. And that teaching, particularly as it relates to the social order, 
has now been compiled. And it's a wonderful resource, and I'm glad to see people went out and got it. It's called the Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. Of course, we still have all the encyclicals and the apostolic letters. See, the social doctrine, of course, it began in the garden called Eden. <laughs> we see the teaching of, of our social obligation. We aren't human unless we're in relationship. And we see throughout the scriptures the social doctrine revealed. Of course, Jesus himself, his way of life, the Beatitudes, Matthew 25. We see in the early patristic sources, uh, beautiful writings, John Chrysostom talking about the sacrament of the brother, St. Basil talking about our social obligations. But the term the social doctrine of the church in the Western church in particular took an impetus uh, from Rerum Novorum and, and the encyclicals on labor during the Industrial Revolution. And then we see the contemporary last 100, 150 years, all of these being pulled together. Now here's the problem. I believe for the longest time, if you hadn't read all of those, you had a time, hard time figuring out what the church really teaches. And so what grew up is a kind of a cult of experts, some well-intended and not, some not well-intended, who use the social teaching of the church almost as proof texts for their own political pensions or their own economic theories. That's why I am so happy that, and of course the catechism has wonderful, wonderful uh, instruction on the social doctrine of the church, but I am so happy we now have this compendium. So, and then I gave some examples of moral incoherence. I didn't spend a lot of time on that because we see them every day, particularly you who live in Northern Virginia and maybe visit the capital. The morally incoherent Catholics in public life who do not live their faith. I suggested at the end that one of the reasons was sadly one of my childhood heroes, John F. Kennedy, who in his uh, message to the Ministerial Association laid the groundwork for the Kennedy mistake, the idea that the teaching of the church is somehow our religious position and it's private and it has no place in the public order. We know that's not true. Because, in fact, the teaching on the church, on the dignity of every human life, from conception throughout all of life to natural death, from our first neighbors in the first home of the womb, to the infirm, the disabled, to our seniors, the teaching of the church and the dignity of every human life is not simply a religious position, but is grounded in the natural law, which can, in fact, be known by reason and confirmed by medical science. So therefore, we must live it in a consistent, morally coherent way and bring it into the culture. I said the same is true on marriage and family life, and I gave you some quotes. And I'll make those available on the website. Some of those quotes were taken from a wonderful letter written by then Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger called On the Pastoral Care of Homosexual Persons. It really should be read. Very sensitive, very well done, and very clear that the church's teaching on marriage is not up for grabs. It's not a social construct. It's written by the divine architect, revealed by the natural law. And there are other areas. The nature of human freedom, as a freedom from and a freedom for. Our obligations in solidarity. But 
The social teaching of the church doesn't, in fact, give specific political positions or even economic positions. It offers principles, truths. And then it asks the faithful to take those principles and truths and out of love offer them to whatever society you live in so that it might become more human and more just. Tonight I want to talk about living a unity of life. I think it was in last weeks, I don't remember which liturgy, but we had that beautiful passage out of uh, the first letter of the beloved disciple John on God is love in chapter 4. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. In this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. And that's 1 John 4 verse 16. But this line popped kind of off the page. Listen to this. Because as he is, so are we in this world. As he is, so are we in this world. That's really the heart of what I'm trying to communicate last week, this week, and next week. We live in the Lord, and he lives his life in us. We live in the church for the sake of the world. The early Christians had an understanding of the church that I think if we could recapture, it will change the way we view ourselves, and yes, even our mission into the social order. So let me talk about unity of life and what it means. Because I think it's another critically important aspect if we're going to understand Catholics and political participation and our obligation to take the truths offered by the church, inform our own participation, and then live differently. Just as I started off with C.S. Lewis last week, let me start off with something a little bit different. Those of you who are getting up in years, like me, pushing 60 or beyond, remember well, I think it was 1972, uh, the Godfather film, Francis Ford Coppola. And I don't know if you remember this. Actually, you can find it on YouTube. Interestingly enough, when I had this idea as a way to start this presentation, I looked it up, and there you can see it right on YouTube. And it's, it's just astonishing. But uh, the movie opens with Al Pacino, who's playing Michael Cordelion, in a baptism ceremony. Do you remember that? It's, it's extraordinary. He's going to be the godfather. I think it's to his sister's child. And, you know, uh, the rite, of course, was in Latin in, in that particular time, except for the questions. Do you reject the glamour of evil? Do you reject Satan and all of his works? And you see Pacino, Cordelione, with apparent sincerity, saying, I do, I do. But the director does something amazing, because while this service is going on, you also see being unleashed this fury of evil that Cordelione has directed to enable himself to become the new godfather. And people are being killed. Blood is being splattered. Just as he's saying, I do. Claiming to embrace this faith into which this child will be baptized. Claiming to renounce Satan and evil to profess the creed. Now that's a pretty clear example of the separation between faith and life, huh? 
pretty clear example. The problem is, what we deal with more often than not is not so clear. It's subtle. It's subtle. For example, oh, that's business. You ever hear that? Well-intended people, good Catholics. In all the years that I helped to lead or serve or form nonprofits, I'd often have to work with high-end donors, and they're all well-intended and wonderful, but I can't tell you how often I'd hear, that's business. As if what we do at Mass or on Sunday, or when we're feeling religious, and how we engage in commerce and the market are not connected. Well, they are. And while the church does not teach a particular economic theory, she certainly does offer principles that we ought to take into our participation in the market. I quoted some of those last week. It's in politics, however, where it becomes so subtle. That's politics. You know how it is. That's politics. Very, very dangerous, and we've seen the bad fruit of it. The doctrinal note on some questions regarding the participation of Catholics in political life is, I think, one of the most important documents available to us if we're going to get rid of this separation between faith and life. That's where the term moral coherence finds its root. That teaching document was directed to the bishops of the Catholic Church, and I'm quoting, and in a particular way to Catholic politicians and to all lay members of the faithful who are called to participate in the political life of democratic societies. Bingo. Right? Pretty clear. It offered direction on what it means to act in a manner which is morally coherent. Explained in its introductory paragraph that by intervening in this area the magisterium does not wish to exercise political power or to eliminate the freedom of opinion of Catholics regarding contingent questions. Instead it intends as is its proper function <clears throat> excuse me, to instruct and illuminate the consciences of the faithful particularly those involved in political life. So their actions may always serve the integral promotion of the human person and of the common good. And then the quote I used last week, the social doctrine of the church is not an intrusion into the government of individual countries. It's a question of the lay Catholic's duty to be morally coherent, found within one's conscience, which is one and indivisible. There cannot be two parallel lives in their existence. On the one hand, the so-called spiritual life with its values and demands, and on the other, the so-called secular life that is life in a family, at work, and social responsibilities, and the responsibilities of public life and in culture. The branch engrafted to the vine which is Christ bears its fruit in every sphere of existence and activity. Living and acting in conformity with one's own conscience on questions of politics is not a slavish acceptance of positions alien to politics or some kind of confessionalism but rather the way in which Christians offer their concrete contribution so that through political life society will become more just 
and more consistent with the dignity of the human person. In short, what the magisterium is reminding us of is something that is desperately needed to be heard by many Catholics in public life. There needs to be a unity in our life. We do not separate the truths as taught by the faith when we step over the door of the Capitol or into the courtrooms. In fact, we must live a unity of life. In the beginning of the compendium, we read about the necessity of an integral and solidary humanism. It's a hard term to put your arms around. The document says, the Christian knows that in the social doctrine of the church can be found principles for reflection, criteria for judgment, and the directives for action, which are the starting point for the promotion of an integral and solidary humanism. Making this doctrine known constitutes, therefore, a genuine pastoral priority, so that men and women will be enlightened by it and enabled to interpret today's realities and take appropriate paths of action. The teaching and the spreading of our social doctrine are part of the church's evangelizing mission. Now we hear the word humanism, and let me take a little moment on this, and we can get very confused. We have unfortunately seen the terrible results of atheistic humanism, of a secularist version of humanism that has exerpted God from having anything to do with the human. We reject that completely. But in fact, Christianity itself is the true humanism. And there is such a thing as Christian humanism. And that is what we ought to be offering to the culture. Now, please take out your handouts. <laughs> I sound very prof professorial today. You see, in examining our political participation, we need to look at some other aspects of what the tradition and the scriptures and the magisterium teach us. And it's really from the realm of theology. And all the ologies, if you will. Anthropology, the study of the human person. In Christian anthropology, the study of the human person as being redeemed in Jesus. Soteriology, the nature of salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Not just saved from, but saved for. Ecclesiology, the nature of the church. And not just the liturgy, but the church herself as the new humanity, the new world, the world in the course of transfiguration. Those are all patristic concepts. So, I have an excerpt from Gaudium et Spes. I don't think I'll read the whole thing, but I want you to take it with you. And your assignment this week, and prayer, is to read it over in prayer. It is probably the most quoted paragraph out of Gaudium et Spes. What's Gaudium et Spes? Latin term means joy and hope. And by the way, a little trick. Most of the documents or the encyclicals, apostolic letters in the Western Church, the title comes from the first line. That's where it comes from. Okay, so Gaudium et Spes, Joy and Hope, that's in the first line of the document 
on the mission of the church in the modern world. And this particular paragraph, paragraph 22, is so profound. It really speaks to the heart of Christian anthropology. Who is the human person? And who is the human person becoming as redemption in Jesus Christ continues? And I don't want to go off too far on this because somebody's going to hold up 30 minutes. But this was also probably the, the favorite paragraph of Blessed John Paul II. He had a lot to do with crafting it and writing it. It's one of the favorite paragraphs of Pope Benedict XVI. It's beautiful. The truth is that only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on life. Even that. You can just reflect on that for the rest of your life. I'll give you a little key to that. Mystery. What does that mean? Remember last week? I talked about mystery. Mystery in theological documents or in the sacred scripture isn't a puzzle to be solved. It's something so profoundly deep that words cannot contain it. It has to be experienced by grace and by the Spirit. And so what is the church saying? If we want to understand who we are, we have to understand who Jesus is. For Adam, the first man, was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. And by the way, every one of those numbers is a footnote. And when you go down, beautiful citations from biblical text and from the early church fathers. Was a figure of him who was to come, namely Christ the Lord. Christ, the final Adam, by the revelation of the mystery of the Father and his love, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. It is not surprising, then, that in him all the aforementioned truths find their root and attain their crown. He who is the image of the invisible God is himself the perfect man. To the sons of Adam he restores the divine likeness which had been disfigured from the first sin onward. Since human nature as he assumed it was not annulled. By that very fact it has been raised up to a divine dignity in our own respect too. For by his incarnation the Son of God has united himself in some fashion with every man. He worked with human hands. He thought with a human mind. He acted by human choice. Loved with a human heart. Born of the Virgin Mary, he has truly been made one of us like us in all things except sin. Read the rest of it. It's absolutely incredible. But that particular, those last two sentences worked with human hands, thought with a human mind, acted by human choice, and the citations there are critically important if we're going to understand who we are called to become in Jesus and who Jesus is now that in fact he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he took upon our humanity and now by his grace we are being transformed. And the early church dealt with each one of these issues and what they meant. He thought with a human mind. What did that mean? He acted by human choice. He exercised human freedom. In fact, Maximus the Confessor, great Eastern father, lost his tongue. And it was done by Christians because he insisted that this is true. Each one of these things is critically important. What do they tell us? Jesus really became a human person, a man like us in all things, the author of the letter of the Hebrews says, except sin. He shows us 
how to be human. And in fact, in him now, we are being recreated. We are being made new. This is so important because as you read St. Paul, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. As you read St. Paul talking about having our passions transfigured, we begin to understand that redemption, yes, it's about being set free from the penalties of sin, from the law of sin and death. Yes, it's being set free from the final enemy of death, but it's being set free for living differently, becoming a new kind of human person in Christ. And every aspect of our life can be touched by grace and transformed. That's the kind of human person that a Christian can become and when we become like that and enter into the culture the effects can be tremendous. That's a little bit of anthropology. Gregory Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, put it this way, whatever was not assumed was not healed. Everything was assumed. Our entire humanity. Now the second handout deals a little bit with ecclesiology, the nature of the church. It's on the back of, I think, the one handout. It's called The Christians in the World. This is on the Vatican website. This is taken from a letter written to a pagan inquirer named Diogenetus. We don't know a whole lot about the person who wrote the letter. There's speculation that somebody named Mattathias or something. Because it wasn't really important that we know about him. What was important is the content of the letter. And this Diogenetus was writing, asking questions about how Christians lived in the world. And I think this is one of the most beautiful documents for us to really get our arms and our hearts around to understand what it means to go into the world, to transform it, including the political world. He writes, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own, or speak a strange dialect, or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. Now you know what that meant, huh? They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. 
They are attacked by the Jews as aliens, they are persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. To speak in general terms, we may say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. As the visible body contains the invisible soul, so Christians are seen living in the world, but the religious life remains unseen. The body hates the soul and wars against it, not because of any injury the soul has done it, but because of the restriction the soul places on its pleasures. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they've done it any wrong, because they are opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them just as the soul loves the body and all its members, despite the body's hatred. It is by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it is by the Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. The soul, though immortal, has a mortal dwelling place. And Christians also live for a time amidst perishable things while awaiting the freedom from change and decay that will be theirs in heaven. As the soul benefits from the deprivation of food and drink, so Christians flourish under persecution. Such is the Christian's lofty and divinely appointed function from which he is not permitted to excuse himself. That is a powerful, powerful letter. You see, the first portion from Gaudium et Spes speaks to what's happening in us as persons. The divisions within us, body, soul, and spirit, are being healed and united, and we are being made into new men and new women. Why? So we can continue the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ in and through the church. And then as his body, we are being sent into a world which is fractured and divided to bring it unity. Anthropology, ecclesiology, soteriology. And we go into the world motivated by love, even though the world rejects us. Now, I don't have time, but it's really important to remember that the term the world is used differently in the, in the scriptures. You know, there's the world is the created order, which God still loves so much, he sends his son. And then there's the world, meaning that system that has squeezed God out of the equation that the letter of James says, we can't be a friend of the world. Okay. We're sent into both to continue the redemptive mission of Jesus because God still loves the world so much that he sends his son. So why do we engage the culture? We have no choice because we love with the love of God. That's why I read 1 John. We are in the world as he is in the world. We are in the world to continue his work. So I say the greatest apologetic for the role of Christians in the culture is we are called to be the soul of the world. We are called to animate it, to raise it up. Now is that an easy task? Absolutely not. Because we will face hostility. And this is not new. This letter was written in the first couple of centuries. Now over the last few weeks, I have heard so many disillusioned men and women expressing a deep concern over the crisis we face as a nation. And I understand it. But as I said last week, I think the exact opposite of what we should do is retreat. 
we must even more dedicate ourselves to going into the culture. Wide-eyed and not naive. Marriage is under assault as courts and legislatures are being used by cultural revolutionaries who are seeking to re redefine the institution out of existence. The taking of innocent life in the first home of the womb continues unabated. If any of you saw the profane report of Planned Parenthood, I read their report every year. You can go online, you can read it. The hundreds of thousands of children that they're killing with government money. And this organization, which leads the war in the womb, has clout now in the current political ruling class. The church's outreach to the sick, the poor, and the needy faces the boot of a hostile federal government. The HHS regulations through which the Affordable Care Act will be enforced unless something changes clearly violate religious freedom. Catholic Christians, however, know that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response from us and from the church of which we are members that goes well beyond the walls because we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We don't reach out to people in need because they are Catholic. We reach out to people in need because we are Catholic. And we see in them all the face of Jesus revealed. And no HHS regulation will compel us to violate our deeply held religious beliefs and our duty. No presidential administration can compel us to stop caring for the poor or the sick or the needy. And clearly, the year that stretches out ahead of us is leading to an historic church-state showdown in the United States of America. No doubt about it. How will it be resolved? I don't know. I hope in the courts, through some kind of resolution. But clearly, the months that stretch out before us are going to require men and women of courage, Catholic men and women of courage, who will live a unity of life, and continue the work, standing for what they know is right and true, precisely because it is right and true. And right and true doesn't change. What is needed more than anything right now are men and women who will live a unity of life. What we are living through is a clash of worldviews, differing definitions of human freedom and human flourishing, of human progress. Different definitions of what constitutes a truly just and human social order. These are not just political matters, but they do touch politics. And they still matter. Even though the national elections are over, and one could get quite depressed at where we stand, we can't withdraw from politics. It's a part of culture. And the culture is a critical component of the mission of the church and in a special way of your mission as lay men and women who are called into this arena. The church must be free to proclaim her message in word and in deed in every nation and in every culture. That is why the teaching has become so clear from the magisterium that religious freedom is a fundamental human right. How much clearer could Pope Benedict be than he's been? And it is under assault, particularly in the West. But the church must continue 
the redemptive work of her head, Jesus Christ. And so we must use our citizenship to defend the right of the church to continue that work. St. Paul used his Roman citizenship to advance the preaching of the gospel. And we must use our American citizenship to do the same. We cannot abandon the call to be leavened in the loaf of human culture. Now, there's no doubt that each of us will have different roles, but none of us can retreat. We need men and women of courage. We need Catholics who will live a unity of life. And so we need models. And I'm going to spend the last bit of time I have. Now, I haven't seen a 30-minute placard. I think Deacon's a little bit more aggressive. Okay. I'm going to spend the last bit of time I have talking about one such model. There are many of them. Many of them. But I'm going to take one of my favorites. <clears throat> See, the saints are a great blessing in so many ways. Of course, they intercede and pray for us in that great communion of which we are a part. But they're also heroes. They put legs on the gospel. They show us exactly what it means to live this out. In October 31st, 2000, Blessed John Paul II responded to petitions from the faithful all around the world and motu proprio, which means on his own authority, issued an apostolic letter wherein he proclaimed this particular hero I want to talk a little bit about, Thomas More, to be the patron of statesmen and politicians. The letter was addressed to the bishops of the Catholic Church, and this is the words of the Pope, and in a particular way to Catholic politicians and to all lay members of the faithful called to participate in the political life of democratic societies. Pretty clear. Thomas More is being held up as a model. John Paul wrote, whenever men or women heed the call of truth, and that's what we're doing in an age of relativism, we're heeding the call of truth, he continues, their conscience then guides their actions reliably toward good. Precisely because of the witness which he bore, even at the price of his life, to the primacy of truth over power. St. Thomas More is venerated as an imperishable example of moral integrity. And even outside the church, particularly among those with responsibility for the destinies of peoples, he's acknowledged as a source of inspiration for a political system which has as its supreme goal the service of the human person. Now, why do I think Thomas More is such a good model for us right now? Let's look at him in context. The England of the 16th century was in the midst of a serious crisis of politics, culture, and faith. Sound familiar? Much like what we face right now. In 1534, all citizens who were of age were required to take an oath called the Act of Succession. It acknowledged that King Henry VIII was married to Anne Boleyn, even though he was not. His desire to divorce Catherine was not sufficient to make that marriage null, and his attempt to use his political power to change objective truth was unsuccessful. So the king used the power of his office to promulgate an unjust law by which he proclaimed that he and Anne were married. He declared himself to be the supreme head of the church in England, abrogated to himself the authority to determine that his lawful marital bond was dissolved and denied the authority of the successor of the Apostle Peter. The Pope courageously refused to collaborate with Henry's demand, 
refused to grant an annulment, refused to affirm Henry's decision to place his disordered desires over objective truth. And Thomas More was caught in the middle of it all. <clears throat> he was serving the crown as a faithful Catholic. He knew the order of truth and he applied a hierarchy of values in his personal life and in his public life. He lived as a faithful Catholic Christian. He demonstrated a unity of life. That's what I'm talking about tonight. And moral coherence, which is what I talked about last week. He stayed faithful to the truth. In 1532, knowing that he could not enforce the declaration of his temporal king to usurp the authority of the church ruled by his true king, he resigned his political position. He tried to do so with the kind of integrity that characterized his whole life. He withdrew from public life. He bore the ridicules and taunts of those who once praised him. And he offered the suffering to the Lord, joining it to the cross. He had a deep and profound spirituality. He then tried to withdraw, take care of his family, the domestic church of the home, by teaching them lives of virtue and simplicity. He lost his prestige his considerable financial resources, but he found some peace, the peace that comes from being faithful, which money can't buy. His hopes, however, for a peaceful life with his family, lived in simplicity and fidelity to the church, were short-lived. The king, by now drunk on his own power, insisted that Thomas take the oath under the act of succession acknowledge the legitimacy of his marriage to Anne, and acknowledge his authority over the church. Thomas couldn't do so. And he wouldn't do so. He refused to violate his truly formed conscience. So the king had his former friend imprisoned in the Tower of London. And there he underwent very intense tortures of body and soul. And these torches came not just from the henchmen of the state, but even from some within his own family and his circle of friends who failed to understand his actions because their minds had been dulled by compromise. They didn't walk a unity of life. They didn't understand why this man was just so doggone stubborn. They didn't understand why he couldn't just incrementally move things along. Thomas could have had his substantial properties restored if he had sworn the oath. Many tried to convince him to do it, telling him that he could have justified the action because, of course, he had to take care of his family. He could have used his rhetorical skills, and they were incredible, to explain it. But he wouldn't do it. He could have even had his political position restored. And some were trying to tell him that that was really the wise thing to do because he could influence the king for good over the long haul. He didn't do it. Could have had his financial standing restored. Taking care of his family. He didn't do it. Why? Because he loved the Lord. And he loved the truth. And he properly loved the world. So he would not compromise the truth. 
He was an ordinary Christian who shows us, ordinary Christians, the way to live a unity of life. In the midst of creeping darkness and distractions that we find in our own age, he was a Catholic who held in harmony his vocation as the father of a family with his profession as a lawyer and his service in political office. He knew there was a hierarchy of values which brings with them a hierarchy of duties and loyalties. And his witness in life and in death challenges us today. I'm running out of time, but I have to touch a little bit on how he did it. And the simple answer is, he prayed. He's a man of profound prayer. He studied and he lived the faith. He lived in a communion with the risen Lord as a faithful son of the church. He lived in the heart of the church for the sake of the world. And he teaches us how we must live in this day and age. He also shows us that to follow the Lord requires a constant decision every day to begin again and again and again, as St. Escriva was so fond of saying, that we cannot get by on yesterday's decisions. And during a brief time that he had with his family after attempting to quietly resign, he kept up his role as a father as they lost everything they had. Whenever the wife or children would complain about their lack, he would tell them they would not get to heaven in feather beds. He taught them to reflect on the sufferings of Jesus, prayed with them for grace. He was a morally coherent Catholic who lived a unity of life. He stood in the face of a state which had lost its soul, and he refused to back down. He wouldn't betray the truth or compromise on the altar of public opinion or give in to political opportunism. He knew that to have done so would have dishonored God. And he tried to lead his family to do the same. Well, he was brought to trial for his fidelity to the truth. Oh, as it always is with Christians, it was framed as a charge against the positive law. Remember, the early Christians were arrested for odium generis, hatred of the human race. And this outstanding lawyer defended the truth. He even used the courtroom once again the place where he practiced his trade to defend the truth. This is why blessed John Paul II held him up, this great prophetic pope who saw where we were headed, and this is why I'm offering him tonight as an example. John Paul wrote, he made an impassioned defense of his own convictions on the indissolubility of marriage, the respect due to the juridical patrimony of Christian civilization, and the freedom of the church in her relations with the state. But he was found guilty, even though he was a guardian of true innocence. And that unjust verdict brings shame upon every unjust tribunal and every misuse of governmental power. He was martyred for his unity of life. He was martyred for his moral coherence. He was beheaded by the minions of a temporal leader who had abused his office and wielded the awful sword, the power of the state, to inflict evil on God's people. But even that he embraced with dignity. He faced his executioners with the same kind of dignity with which he faced life. He spoke with humor and affection 
even before they beheaded him. And after his death, it was found that he had left these words in the margin of his book of hours, and I quote, Give me your grace, good Lord, to set the world at naught, to have my mind well united to you, to not depend on the changing opinions of others, so that I may think joyfully of the things of God and tenderly implore his help, so that I may lean on God's strength and make an effort to love him, so as to thank him ceaselessly for his benefits, so as to redeem the time that I have wasted. My friends, as I conclude tonight, we need to reflect on how we are living our own Catholic faith in the midst of an increasingly hostile age. We face a similar challenge to that which Thomas More faced. Our culture is in decline. The attacks on marriage are increasing. We are invited to compromise for our own convenience. We're tempted to accept the rulings of judicial oligarchs and the new alchemists who think you can change the nature of reality by legislation or crazy opinions. And there are collaborators in political office, some of whom are apostate Catholics, who are now beginning to wield the figurative sword of temporal power against us. Witness the HHS mandate, which threatens the fundamental right to religious freedom. It's probably the tip of an iceberg. But the truths taught by the Catholic Church and revealed within the common patrimony of the natural law, even though they're rejected in an age that is struggling under what Benedict properly called a dictatorship of relativism, are the path to the future, the path to true liberation and true freedom and true human flourishing. You and I are called to walk that path and to bring others with us. God bless you all. Thank you so much, Deacon Fournier. I'm Melanie Baker. I'm the Associate Director, not everybody may know me. And Deacon Sabatino Carnazzo, who heads up the Institute, is at home in bed with the flu. However, he's been watching and he's sending me notes. <laughs> he told you to hold up that yes. person. <laughs> um, he, he actually, he did want to remind everybody, make your plans now for the March for Life. It's a week from tomorrow. Deacon Fournier wants to say something about the march, so if you could just sit for one more second. Thank you. It's on. I also want to extend an invitation to everybody here and anyone else who wants to come, that on the day of the march, I believe it's at 8 o'clock, and you can find out the exact hour, because I didn't bring it with me, by going to the Priest for Life website. Uh, Father Frank and I and many, many others will be at the National Memorial for the Preborn and their mothers and fathers. I've been at it in years past. We expect an overflow crowd. Uh, we have Christian leaders from every tradition. Uh, so please do consider coming. And then um, March. I mean, estimates are that this might be the largest crowd in the history of the March. May that be the case. Uh, we will be sending a very, very important message. This one comes from Adam <coughs> Sylvain. I'm going to go ahead and start with an internet question, if that's okay with you guys. He asks, Deacon Fournier, in addition yeah. to praying and being a witness to the faith in the public and political realms, do you have any more advice on practical steps we can take to influence issues important to the church, such as religious liberty, traditional marriage, and pro-life causes? Well, I think to use an older phrase 
which needs to be resurrected. What we need more than anything else is Catholic action. We need men and women who are willing to go into courts, who will go into legislatures. We had a, a woman just came up to me and said, what are we going to do about the, the media blacking out the March for Life? Should I call them? Should I? Absolutely you should. People who will write to newspapers. What I said last week, people who will run for office. There's some things, you know, I'm, I'm here speaking in particular as a deacon of the church trying to present the social teaching of the church. But I am also a lawyer. And I spent most of my career using my license to engage these issues. And I think Catholic lawyers are critical right now. We've got a number of wonderful associations that are really at work. Clearly, we know about all the lawsuits that have been filed. More being filed all the time. They need to be filed. We need to use the courts. Last week, I gave a pitch, Adam, and, and if you're, you're listening, I don't know if you heard it or not, we need Catholics to run for office. We need to find good people, whether they're Catholic or not, who will not compromise on on life and marriage and family and authentic human freedom and solidarity and we need to in fact promote them for office I cannot go off into details on this but I also because I'm in the world you know deacons are an order of clergy in the midst of the world I serve the altar but I'm also in the world and uh, I started a uh, communications company with through which I do this uh, to actually help people who I think should be in public office so we need to be citizens, and we need to be taking citizen involvement. We need to be doing in our time what Thomas More did in his time. There's just plenty of work to be done. So, but all of it, however, needs to be undergirded with prayer and informed by a continual Catholic education, self-education. You see, the mistake that happens in politics or in law or in any kind of activism is we can get off on our own. And before long, we don't think with the mind of the church. So my purpose in this talk and in last week's talk was more to try to break open the thinking of the church in the more broader uh, principles. Now the application of that, there's so much that can be done. I mean, the use, utilization of the new media. I mean, the new media is the alternative that needs to become the media. With the integrated media we have, we no longer have the internet and radio and TV. It's all one. It's all one. And, you know, YouTube's a perfect example of that. We should be the ones who are engaging it and using it. Forming the new associations, the sodalities, whatever, whatever form. The C3s, the C4s, the PACs. Okay, the lay associations to engage the issue. To join together. We need to be courageous and heroic. We need to learn how to present our positions. When people say, that's your religious position. We need to be able to explain the natural law and to stand up for it. And by the way, I wanted to hold this up. Uh, a woman came up and said, well, you know, I was reading something that, that said the HHS mandate, if it continues, do we need to obey it? Because this particular source said it's not a, a just law. It's not. And we don't. In fact, I say we need to disobey it. And I'm glad to hear that there are courageous people willing to do just that if it comes down to it, including courageous bishops who are willing to do that. And I'll, I'll get you in a second. Uh, on the natural law, I was here a year ago and did a series on uh, moral theology, of which social doctrine is a branch, as I said last week. And I recommended this book, and I want to recommend it again, for a good primer on the natural law. It's called First Grace by Russell Hittinger. A wonderful book on the natural law. You know, the great human rights movements, I, I mentioned last week, if you read Letter from a Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King, how does he, in fact explain his position of going to jail 
When ministers were saying he was an extremist, he went to jail because racism was evil, and how did he explain it? You know how he did it? The natural law. And he quoted Thomas Aquinas. It's a very, very interesting section on, on the letter from a Birmingham jail. So, Andrew, in answer to your question is Catholic action. We need a new Catholic action. The term used to be used before the Second Vatican Council in a different manner, because at that time you had the church sort of taking the lead and people supporting the church. Since the Second Vatican Council, in particular with the lay faithful being clearly taught that their primary vocation is in the world and in the temporal order, there's a new Catholic action, I think, that is taking root in all of the associations and all of the groups, and the more the merrier, if you will. But what's most important that is that it be truly Catholic action not conservative action with Catholic stuff thrown on it or liberal action with Catholic stuff thrown on it, but Catholic as the noun, with a Catholic vision of the human person, a Catholic understanding of marriage and family and the social order, a Catholic understanding of the natural moral law, a Catholic understanding that we take these positions because we must. And the positions we take, in fact, serve the common good don't let yourself be backed into a corner on the life issue. Yes, our position on life is supported, of course, by revelation and by the teaching of our church. But it is affirmed in the natural law, which can be known by human reason, and it is supported by science. Is there a hierarchy of values? And in fact, as I said last week, I prefer, and the language I try to use, and I'm offering it if it works, if it helps, is that we don't see life as an issue at all but rather as a hermeneutic, to use a theological term, a lens through which we view all issues. The fundamental human right to life, because without life, there are no other rights, because only human persons can have rights. And so there is nothing more important than life. And the teaching of the Magisterium of the Church is clear on that, whether it's in the Gospel of Life, or in Pope Benedict's uh, allocutions and his Papal Magisterium, Life is the fundamental right. It's more than an issue. Certainly, there are issues involved. Abortion, euthanasia, all of those kinds of things. But it's a lens through which we view every issue. The reason we care about the poor is because they have human dignity. And we need to respect that human dignity. So what I'm trying to do, and that's why I'm not talking about Virginia Catholic Conference or any of them, is to give rhetoric, if you will, a way of presenting this so that we don't run into this problem, you know? And the same is true of marriage and family. Our position on marriage is between one man and one woman intended for life, open to new life, as the first society, the first church, the first inst mediating institution. That's revealed by the natural law. And we cannot veer from that, period. Now, there are those positions and they're very clear in the social teaching of the church. The most effective thing that I think laymen and women can do is to learn that social teaching and then ground their action in it. See, somebody came up to me, for example, at another talk, and I, I, I just won't say where. <clears throat> they said, well, what do you think about the seamless garment? And I said, well, it depends on what the phrase means. Misinterpreted, I don't like it. Properly understood that there's a unity of these kinds of issues, and we need to look at the whole of Catholic teaching. I prefer not to use it. I prefer to use something like unity of life, moral coherence, because unfortunately, that phrase was co-opted. Okay? I think a well-intended bishop initially used it, and then it got just co-opted. And, and, and it's used to beat people over the head. 
How can you say that the taking of innocent human life in the womb is any more offensive to truth than not caring for the poor? Well, that's not what we're saying. In fact, Blessed Teresa of Calcutta gives us a great response to that. Innocent life in the womb, they're the poorest of the poor. We need to learn how to present our positions because we're going to continually have to deal with this equalizing everything and being beat over the head sometimes by people who who really want to confuse us okay so this is why I say life is not an issue at all it's the lens through which we view every issue because what are human rights human rights are not ethereal concepts that float around in the air somewhere they're goods of the human person without a human person you don't have any of those other rights and so we have to protect human persons from the moment of conception all the way through natural death. Okay? And then we also need to understand that there are issues of prudential judgment. I touched on one last week. For example, the church offers principles that we ought to consider as we look at economics. Here's some very, very good teaching from Blessed John Paul and from Pope Benedict, Charity and Truth and his, and his encyclicals, on the whole issue of what's called the market economy. And both of them prefer to use the term free economy rather than capitalism. And to emphasize that in fact the human person needs to be considered and, and the family. So we need to learn that there are prudential areas but then there are principles that don't change. The market was made for man, man not man for the market. You know because otherwise this is why I think it's important for Catholics to begin with Catholic social thought. Not to begin with a pet economic theory or a pet conservative political theory. Now, we may end up, I mean, I'm certainly not called a liberal these days, okay? I'm not. But I don't like any of the labels. I'm trying as best I can, and I got a long way to go, to stay steeped in the teaching of the catechism and the scriptures and the magisterium and particularly the compendium. Because I think that Catholics are the answer right now. Because we're living in a secularist culture a neo-pagan culture. Many of our evangelical friends, so well-intended, are not getting any ground as they quote the Bible. If you don't accept the authority of the Bible, who can make the natural law arguments on these incredibly important subjects we're dealing with today as the West implodes, as we lose our moral compass? Who can argue that in fact there is a natural moral law which can be known by all men and women, which must inform our positive laws. And if it does not do so, they are unjust. Where does that come from? From our church. It comes from Thomas Aquinas. It comes even from the patristic age. And I think we need an informed lay faithful who can make these arguments. And finally, and I said this last week, I don't know if you were here, I was at a meeting a couple years ago in Washington, D.C. And it was a big, long table. I haven't gone to these meetings in many, many years, but I went to this one. And they were mostly all evangelicals, well-intended evangelicals, pro-lifers, pro-marriage people, okay? The governor, Mike Huckabee, was there. And all of this discussion was coming up, and I went off on one of my little things like I just did, okay, about uh, life and the natural law and confirmed by some, you know, all of that. And afterwards, I had people come up and say, where did you get that? Where did that come from? And I said, the Catholic catechism. That's where it came from. Now, why do I end with that in my <laughs> attempt to respond to you? There's a biblical passage, and as I push 60, and I'm very close, it, it, it becomes even more sobering. 
Jesus said, to those to whom much is given, much more will be required. And if the fullness of truth subsists within the Catholic Church, and I believe it does, I think of all Christians, we who are Catholics are going to be judged the more severely, and we have the highest obligation. I think well-informed and educated Catholics are the solution to the social crisis we're facing right now. And yes, we're struggling internally, but I avoid those internecine struggles as much as I can. I definitely avoid what I call the Catholic circular firing squads. They're everywhere. You got whole websites built up around them. Oh, he's not really Catholic or she's not really Catholic. In the meantime, Rome is burning. I think what's really needed are sessions like this. What's really needed, and you're right, by the way, thank God for the Institute for Catholic Culture, because what it is doing is forming the minds and the worldviews of lay Catholic men and women to do what needs to be done. And those are the ones who ought to be doing it. Now, will they run into struggles in the infrastructure of our church, which you and I both love? Yes. But look, we love her. She's institutional and charismatic. She always will be. Spirit and mud. And there's nothing new about the stuff that goes on inside. But I think if we can have a powerhouse, informed, well-educated, lay Catholic action out there, engaging this mess, it's got to be led by Catholics, and it can be. So I know I didn't answer the first part of your question. I'm doing so out of, I believe, prudence and out of a proper politic and respect. And I mean that. I do. Because I think that, that a lot of good people are trying to do good things. And I know the problem, that sometimes it sounds as though we're putting everything on an equal footing. How do I handle it? When it comes to the issue of life, when it comes, to, I, I try to explain that life is not an issue at all. Life is a hermeneutic, a lens through which we view everything. And without the right to life, there are no other rights. It's working. It's working. I try to do the natural law thing. I try to, as best I can, to explain that medical science confirms what our conscience has long ago told us. I'm beginning to develop a language of solidarity for the life position. I mentioned this last week, and I think it's a critical thing for us to do as Catholics, to refer to the child in the womb as being in the first home of the whole human race. And that child in the womb is our neighbor. And it is always and everywhere wrong to take the innocent life of a neighbor. To show the complete contradiction in our language as we continue to have 4D and 3D ultrasound images of baby's first picture and then use the same technology to take baby's life. To begin to use these kinds of realities to help make our argument. When you make the life argument as a solidarity argument among people who care about the needy and the poor, when you talk about interuterine surgical intervention happening earlier and earlier and earlier on, I mean, what can you say? Even the evil people who still try to defend the treachery, the barbarism of taking the life of our first neighbor, even those people stopped using their awful arguments that it's not life. Now they're stuck with this crazy notion of freedom as a raw power over others. This power motif, huh? And this is where, again, I think Catholic teaching on freedom the nature of human freedom is not just freedom from, but freedom for. Moral theology, popularly expressed, that our choices matter. That in our choices, we not only change the world around us, we change ourselves. And that there are some things that are always and everywhere wrong to choose. 
because in choosing them you commit evil and we know they exist so this is what I'm trying to do and I, th I think all of this in a certain sense this apologetic if you will can inform this kind of Catholic action finally I support the Knights and all of the efforts within the church to do all of this stuff but I also support the broader based ecumenical coalitions that are being formed the broader based private associations and lay associations that are being formed and I think the more of them the better and the better educated their leaders the better I'll try to and that would be the last question because I know we're out of time yeah. so go ahead I just feel badly because you had your hand up first all right last question very yeah. quick yes yes all right. I know that uh, I guess the abortion issue is pretty obvious my concern probably is the one on uh, marriage mm -hmm. like for example the Episcopal Church said now they can have same-sex yeah. marriages in the cathedral yeah. so how do you explain I mean now that one when it makes supposedly it's very confusing for people well if they can get married in the, the big church the cathedral they must be okay so how do you approach that issue? Sure. Well, again, I think you take the church's wisdom on teaching on marriage, which she offers in her magisterium. And I quoted some of the documents that have come out recently uh, from the church on explaining marriage and the natural law argument for marriage. I think our bishops are doing a stellar job. Everybody from Archbishop or Cardinal Dolan on the way down. We've got some wonderful stuff there. But that's for Catholics, okay? What do we do for our Episcopal friends as what's left of the American version of their church continues to rush headlong into heresy? We make a way for them to come home through the ordinariate and full communion. And I mean that because I think the greatest, one of the greatest things happening in the church, and a dear friend of mine, he's up here. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe you know Father Andy Sly. I've known him for many, many, many years and was a part of his journey. I think what's happening in the ordinariate is one of the bright signs of spring within the church. And frankly, what Benedict did in, in his apostolic constitution is brilliant. He is an historic pope. People underestimate how history will regard this pope. And I think what he did in the ordinariate with establishing a juridic structure, we need to open it up, and we are opening it up, because our friends, our Christian friends in that church, as it continues to, in fact, turn its back on orthodox Christian truth, need an alternative and another way home. And I hope that this concept, and this will be a little controversial, and I'd be happy to tease it out in a future session, of the ordinary can be extended to other churches of the Reformation as they look to come into the heart of the church. And again, think about that. With all the mess, what a tremendous privilege we have to be in a church where there is a magisterium where there is clear teaching, even if it's not being followed in some of its local expressions, where there is a standard of truth that is splendorous. Anyway, God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deacon Fournier. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.